the villain, the complete opposite of the hero. For every great hero's journey, there's an equally great villain standing in the way of our hero, who in some ways catalyzes the entire thing and causes our hero to take action in the first place. But what is it that really makes up a really good villain? Is it the way he looks? Is it what he has to do or accomplish? Is it the way he tortures the hero character? There's many different things that have popped up in terms of trying to explain what makes and constitutes a good villain. And although that might sound a bit like an hypocrisy in of itself, a good villain, there actually is something to be said for that. And it's something I hope to tackle in over the next few episodes as I talk about what exactly is a villain. This is The Writer's Lens, I'm Josh J.C. Alfelto, and this is episode 37, What is a Villain Anyway? Alright guys, well welcome back to another week of The Writer's Lens. This is Josh J.C. Alfelto, and thanks for tuning back in this week. I'm switching gears a bit because my last few episodes I was dealing primarily with heroes, and now I'm going to flip over the other side of the coin and talk about the villain, which is, as many of you may know, is the antithesis of the hero or the protagonist of any hero's journey or hero's story. So uh, to a lot of you, this might be actually a really fun episode to be a part of, because in some sense, uh, especially in today's modern cinema and a lot of storytelling, uh, the villains sometimes end up being more interesting than the heroes. And I hate saying that, but in some cases they can be. And I, I know I've talked about that in a lot of other episodes uh, here on The Writer's Lens, but specifically for this one, I'm going to talk about the ideals and the ideology behind what makes a villain. So, without any further ado, let's just get right into it. According to Webster's Dictionary, the villain character is the chief antagonist who opposes the hero of any story. So there's already this element of opposition that exists. So think of your mortal enemy from elementary school, the person that maybe threw spitballs at you across the, uh, you know, across the classroom or poked you in the neck or perhaps tripped you in gym class. You know, it's the person that impedes your process. Okay, that, that could be the villain of your story. And as I said before in, in a few other uh, previous episodes, we all kind of in some sense view ourselves as, as a hero. You know, we want to be the, the hero of our own stories, but it's not a very easy thing to do. So if you, if you missed out on that, you can go check out episode 36. But, but moving ahead with this idea of one who impedes our actions... It's kind of a weird thing, actually, when you when you start to pull it apart and unpack that idea that, that there's actually someone out there, another human being, whose complete motivation is to cease us from going forward. That just seems kind of strange, doesn't it? I mean, I, or maybe, I, maybe I'm thinking too deeply about this topic, but honestly, though, if I'm trying to get somewhere and I'm minding my own business, and then all of a sudden someone comes along, another human being, and their chief purpose that they've chosen for their existence is to stop mine, it's, it's kind of a strange obsession if you think about it. Okay, it's a bit of a, a weird place to be in, I, I would think. Um, but, I, you know, as, as I'm going to talk about in this episode, it, it may not be as strange as you think. I guess just from the outside looking in at a 10,000-foot view, when you think about the definition of what a villain is, it, it really is kind of a strange psychological trip. When you when you talk about the idea of impeding the motion of another person and keeping them from from progressing forward, so I just I wanted to lead off with that because I think it's important to 
to kind of come at this as from many angles as possible. So, so think, uh, for instance, good examples would be uh, Lord Voldemort in the Harry Potter series. Okay, the Dark Lord of, of the seven books of Harry Potter, plus the Fantastic Beasts. Darth Vader of Star Wars. Most recently, the TV show Stranger Things and uh, the, the Beast character from the us, Upside Down world who stands in opposition in some sense to the motivations of the kids in the, in the TV show. Okay, uh, this idea of a character that that is moving along a path that is halting the progress of the main characters that you're you're following along with, that you're sympathizing with, that you're starting to relate to, or hopefully relating to, if it's a good story, uh, because that's the element of what makes a really good protagonist is that you can relate to this person and you actually care when the villain shows up because it creates that tension. As the protagonist is going forward and you're relating to them more and, and you, you might be starting to actually like them, hopefully you're liking them, this villain comes along and says, no, you know, we're, we're, I'm not letting you go any further, okay? This, I'm, I'm stopping this from happening. I have my own agenda, and it just so happens that you're in my way. So keeping that in mind, probably one of the most ancient examples of this could be like the devil in the Bible, for instance. You know, the hater of mankind, the hater of, of God himself, the devil, this caricature of what is evil because you know let's be honest the the idea of evil goes hand in hand with villains uh, even though it's it's listed by the dictionary as being a character who opposes the hero uh, we also have to make mention of the fact that if we're following a hero and we know there's a villain there's obviously ideals that each side is pushing forward throughout the story there's there's ideals that both the hero and the villain embody. And we would hope that the hero embodies goodness, righteousness, justice. The idea of promoting peace, for instance, would be agendas on the hero's list of things to do. Whereas the villain, being the evil one inspired by evil, would be malicious in, in nature, would be malevolent, would be in the business of thwarting things and perverting the outcomes that would be good for the protagonist or the hero character. So real real parallel here going on um, between the hero and the villain. They're both moving along a path, but completely different ideologies are going with them. And as I talked about in previous episodes about heroes, the ideals of heroes are great, they're good, but they're also really tough to do. Uh, they're really tough to accomplish, but we still have to aim at them. And yet the villains, as it turns out, which can be cool because they, they do their own thing, it would seem. The villains, even though they are evil and they are perverse and they do a lot of terrible things, we still can relate to them. We still relate to them in some sense. Uh, provided, uh, for instance, if I'm thinking of the Batman series and characters like the Joker or Two-Face or the Penguin or Mr. Freeze even, some of the chief villains that Batman has run across during his lengthy career of comic books and movies, there's still some element to the villains that we as human beings can look at them and go, yes, I, I can see perhaps in some way why you would want that to be your motivation or why you would want that goal to come to fruition, right? Maybe not the Joker because the Joker is all about chaos, but, uh, but most other characters, there at least is some plight that they have, skewed as it may be, perverse as it may be, as a human being, you could at least look at them and go, man, you know, that that's pretty messed up. But I could see in some sense why they would want that. 
because of maybe their background, where they come from, whatever it is. I could see this being a reason why they would do what they do. And I would say, to some extent, the villains who have their, their motives shrouded in mystery are some of the most terrifying. Uh, and I don't want to get too ahead of myself on this concept, but but the villains who you don't know what they're up to, they're so unpredictable. They're the ones that you're just kind of sitting there going, I have no idea what's going to happen, and that terrifies me. Uh, for instance, a good example of this, I think, would be the movie Jaws. Okay, granted, the entire premise is about a giant oversized great white shark that's eating human beings off the coast of, uh, I think, Maine is the is the state that they're in. But even though it's just an animal, even though it's a creature that's out to survive, it still has malevolent tendencies throughout the entire film. And, and personally, I love the, the movie Jaws. I think it's a great great movie. I think it's a good story too. But the shark, in order for the entire story to actually work, it has to have some level of malevolence. It has to appear evil. It, it has to seem as though there's a mind behind it that is intentionally trying to take out the good people or characters of that specific story. And if it didn't, then you probably would be less interested. You'd, you'd probably be like, okay, I'm totally going to tune out of this I'm not going to watch this anymore because it's just about a giant shark and a bunch of guys trying to trying to kill it. Okay, it just doesn't work for me. And yet the story does work because the shark appears to be this evil entity underneath the water. I mean, there's there's several scenes that Spielberg sets up to to give the appearance that the shark is actually playing with the the hunters, Quint and uh, Rob Schneider's character, uh, who is um, oh man, he's called Chief constantly, uh, Chief Brody. And Hooper, who's played by Richard Dreyfus, the shark actually does things that makes the three men question just what they're up against. And that's what makes a really good foil for the entire story. It, it makes it more than just three guys on a boat trying to kill a giant fish. It creates a narrative that they're actually trying to achieve something good here. They're trying to stop something evil, something that's going to keep terrorizing people if they don't put an end to it. And that's what makes that story so appealing to so many people is because it comes off that way. It actually makes you feel like there are good humans against something bad. And, um, and that's, what, that's what ends up making that, that entire story work. So that's good stuff. But what are some actual characteristics of villains in general? So I, I wanted to kind of run through some things that I thought were imperative to talk about as it relates to, you know, what, what does constitute a good villain? So first of all, there's the physical nature of the villain character. And I think this is really interesting because in the, in the movie Unbreakable by M. Night Shyamalan, there's two characters uh, portrayed by Bruce Willis and Samuel L. Jackson. So if you've seen the movie, then just follow along with me on this point because there's a, a really unique scene towards the end where Sam Jackson's mother is at an art exhibit with uh, Bruce Willis's character. And by now we've already established that Bruce Willis is a secret superhero. He can't be physically harmed. You know, he has this ability to see the bad things that people have done. It's a really fascinating uh, sort of exploration into the mythos of, of what makes superheroes. And they're having this conversation towards the end of the movie where Willis again and Sam Jackson's mother are talking, and they're surveying this, this comic book cover with a hero battling against a villain. And the mother begins to talk about how the physical drawings of the hero and villain 
are great articulations of what it actually looks like in a battle between good and evil. She goes on to say that the head is slightly larger than the body on the villain character, and his eyes are somewhat bigger, a little bit off, off skew, showing that he has a slightly distorted perspective on the world. And I might be paraphrasing that a little bit, but but it's a great point because uh, moments later, spoiler, spoiler alert, Bruce Willis uncovers that Sam Jackson has actually been the villain the entire time in the film because he's been causing all these disasters trying to find Bruce Willis's character as he believes there are actual heroes in the world. So he, he's killed hundreds of people in the movie, and it's revealed in this great revelation, this great twist that Shyamalan is so known for, that he was actually doing all these horrible things. And when you look at his character, his he has this kind of strange haircut, uh, he kind of has this googly eye look in his face, and he represents physically, in some sense, the opposite of the hero. He's he's crippled. He's called Mr. Glass. Bruce Willis's character is unbreakable, so obviously that's the opposite of Glass. Glass being a very, I wouldn't say easy thing to break, but you get the metaphor there. So physically, there's this interesting element of how the villain looks perhaps different than the hero, and it's very recognizable to the audience. Now, in other examples, characters like Darth Vader, who is shrouded in mystery behind his mask. Another great example of a great villain character with a symbol and an image that you you don't know what's going to happen with this guy. Physically, he's imposing, he's big, he's black, he's dark, but the mask itself also lends itself to a really powerful interpretation of what evil is is that there's something shrouded behind. You can't see into his eyes. You don't know what's going on behind the mask. And that unpredictable nature of Vader makes you, the audience member, or the viewer of this story, kind of, I wouldn't say tremble in fear, but it makes you wonder, what is he going to do? Since I can't read him, all the normal things that I could do to try and discern if if I'm in danger or not, I can't do with this guy. Because everything is hidden. Everything is veiled. And that's also one of the beauties about the Vader character on the screen is that visually he looks like somebody that you don't know if you could trust or not, but he's imposing and he's, he's extremely strong. And, uh, you know, if you've watched the Star Wars uh, movies at all, you know that he uses the Force and he can use it by any means that he wants to to choke people out. That's one of his favorite things to do in the old films. So keeping that in mind, this physical nature of Vader lends itself to making him a really good villain. You know, taking it one step further, looking at characters like the Emperor that's in that's in the Star Wars story. His, his entire head is veiled behind a hood. Uh, it's hard to see his eyes. And the eyes are a really good indicator many times of the villain character, the way that they look at you. You know, I, I think of uh, perhaps, uh, you know, I come from the, the video game industry uh, generation, growing up on video games and how video games began to adopt deeper narratives and more engaging story, you know, stories in general. And I remember one of the biggest games of the time when I was a teenager was Final Fantasy VII. And arguably the most famous villain of the Final Fantasy series. I mean, there's like 15 or 16 of these games now. In Final Fantasy VII was a character called Sephiroth. And Sephiroth had this like long silver hair, was very sleek looking character, was a soldier, had this long blade. He was super strong, super powerful. And his the image of him was that he was almost perfect. Like everything about him, there was perfection. You know, he was a class 
you know, S soldier, which, you know, meant he was like the cream of the crop. You know, he was the general of this army within the Final Fantasy universe of this particular game. Nothing could touch him. He was perfect. He was, uh, there was, there was nothing about him that was, that was flawed. And yet, ultimately, he ends up becoming very flawed. Uh, he ends up becoming this extremely evil person out to dominate and destroy, you know, mostly the entire planet. So, uh, again, spoiler alert if you've never played those games. But this physical presence that the Sephiroth character has in the video game itself is one that's deceiving. And it, and it fits with the same model of Vader and even with characters like Voldemort, this, de- this deceptive form that the villain has that's not like the heroes. The hero in a sense, is not out to deceive you. The hero is out to prove to you through his example, and even the way that he can be approachable or inviting uh, in general makes him embody those good characteristics and values that we would look for in a hero. You know, approachable, inviting, uh, you know, good or perhaps humble or righteous, uh, to some degree predictable uh, in a way of what they're going to do. But the villain characters are always a little bit off kilter. You don't know what they're going to do. Uh, and then physically, they represent that, uh, either by presenting an overly perfect frame, such as the character of Sephiroth that I just that I just referenced, or the fact that they they overtly mask themselves so that you can't see in their eyes, that you can't see into their souls necessarily to understand what they're really what they're really trying to do. Now, back to my video game analogy, uh, physic when, about the physical nature of villains, size does matter in this sense. I think that also needs to be said because in video games, the final boss character, which is usually your final villain, the the guy you have to beat at the very end of any game, tends to be larger than life. Tends to be this this massive character. I mean, when uh, Super Mario first came out on the Nintendo 64 and it was the first three-dimensional game that Mario was in. I mean, prior to all the other ones, he was a side-scroller, 2D game. You're running from one edge of the platform to the other, you know, stomping on mushrooms and Koopas and, and trying to avoid falling into the lava pit. Okay, every game was, was somewhat the same. But in this version, he was finally in a three-dimensional environment. He could run around in different places. It was revolutionary for the franchise back in the 90s. And when he got to the very end to face off against his arch-nemesis, Bowser, or King Koopa, the character of Koopa or rather King Koopa, is enormous. He's, a, he's massive. Okay, He's this huge character that takes up almost the entire screen, and he could squash you at any instant. This boss character concept is so prevalent in video games today. It's, it's incredible. I mean, most every boss character of every great epic video game series, Halo, uh, the most recent Bloodborne's, Star Fox series, the Metroid series, I'm probably going to reference a lot of Nintendo games because I was a Nintendo purist when I was younger. Uh, the Zelda games, okay, Zelda, I, I can't mention, not mention Zelda. Okay, their final boss characters of any of these games are usually enormous. They're, they're overtly big because the challenge that has to be overcome is huge. It's bigger, it's larger than life. And this is a huge, huge element of what makes a really good villain as well is that there's a physical presence, as I've been saying, that's bigger than yours. And it makes you cower beneath the imposing nature of the villain because they are that much bigger and stronger than you are. And and again, it, once you conquer the villain, you know, again, not to get 
too far ahead of ourselves here. When you actually conquer the villain, it makes you feel that much better about your accomplishment because let's you know let's face it, by defeating something that's three times your size or four times your size, in the very literal sense, it's a huge feeling of accomplishment. It's not the same as you know beating a character that's half your you know half your size. If the end of a Jurassic Park movie was the main character is trying to get away from the tiny compsognathuses, which are the size of a small chicken, versus trying to escape the thrall of a of a chasing Tyrannosaurus Rex, you wouldn't feel like the stakes were very high. I mean, let, you know, let's just be honest, it, it wouldn't be nearly as exciting. So there is something to be said for the size of a villain uh, in proportion to to the challenge that the hero is up against in, in whatever that may be. So, so that's the physical sense. Now, psychologically, I had mentioned the motivations that villains have and how do they get crafted psychologically against our hero so for one we already know that villains are in opposition to the hero so their goals are not in line with the hero whatsoever and they're they are the enemy of progression for the hero and as i said also villains can also be the catalyst to the hero's journey but they're also a catalyst for something else which is what i i want to unpack a bit here which is the self-awareness of a larger battle now, what this means is, again, going back to Joseph Campbell and his design of the hero's journey, there's a comfortable known existence for the hero to be. Uh, everything is somewhat peaceful. There's little strife. Everything is, is lived in routine. But then the villain changes everything. The villain disrupts the equilibrium of the hero's environment, thus calling him or her into action to set things back into balance. And this is interesting because the villain and his cause could have always been around. It just never seeped into the hero's world until now. So it's it's kind of like saying you're not aware of a problem until it's actually a problem or the problem presents itself to you. Well, villains tend to do this for their heroes. They make them self-aware that there actually is a larger problem at stake here. Everything that you were doing in your comfortable little space that was, like I said, was was predictable and you could control it to some extent, well, guess what? It's over with. Me, the villain, I've now made you aware of a much larger battle, a much larger narrative, and I'm calling you out into it to stop me. Stop me if you will, you know, at all means necessary. And now, again, I, I'm not saying that, that villains are uh, call out heroes into the open and say, hey, come get me, uh, you know, try and stop me so you can go back to your comfortable life. And I'm not trying to say that there's some kind of social activist, uh, you know, spurning these responses from heroes. But... It does present itself this way, I would argue, in a sense, that the hero has really nothing to do until there is some kind of opposition to his otherwise peaceful existence. So again, getting back to you know one of the biggest sci-fi stories of all time, Star Wars, and uh, uh, you know Luke Skywalker living on it in on a desert planet, and he's you know got to go get you know power converters or whatever or whatever it is that he was. Uh, tasked with doing in the beginning of the story and all of a sudden his aunt and uncle are burned to a crisp and now all of a sudden he's thrust into being chased by the empire bigger story he was always a part of it but he wasn't quite aware of it until it knocked on his doorstep and that's part of the hero's journey that's part of what makes a villain and the evil part of our stories uh, become so real to us as part of that larger narrative now now the last thing that I want to talk about in relation to what is a, a good villain is the theological and philosophical aspect of villains. Now, for centuries or as long as mankind can remember and write it down, we've wrestled with this idea of what is evil. 
And now every villain is is posited to be on the side of, of evil. And, you know, as I've said before in other episodes, this becomes rather, you know, blurry or a bit hazy because in today's modern society, and I've, uh, like I said, I've argued this before, we tend to look at villains as not being as, as horrific as we may think. There, there's almost a sympathy for them in some way. You know, like we see a villain and we go, well, maybe they're really not that bad, right? Like we, we've got to sympathize with them in some sense. And I've talked about that, about the idea of romanticizing the idea of darkness in some of my past episodes, if, if you want to go check those out. But anyway, there's this old idea of evil and that the villain stands with evil, which is the perversion of good. So philosophically speaking, evil is the observance of, of bad outcomes, right? You know, on a broad scale, you know, so it could be a moral dilemma that's going on, or it could be uh, something that deals with natural disasters like earthquakes or typhoons or a firestorm or, or something of that nature. Essentially, it's it's anything that eradicates the idea that humans can survive and thrive. Okay, it's this it's this trying to create a barrier to humans actually branching out and and going further and farther and and not only just surviving but thriving in some sense is what we would consider to be evil. So theologically speaking, evil has taken on many forms and sometimes sometimes it will encompass both the natural and the moral yet having a direct progenitor to these all all these bad outcomes now what I'm trying to basically say is, is that we we've pinned this idea of evil on several different things and and in the Christian worldview for instance Satan and all of his agents are some of the causal factors for evil uh, the demonic hordes that would be uh, at Satan's disposal for instance being behind uh, the attack on the fallenness of man. Okay, this this idea that there is this evil entity that is that is known and has a name. It's it's a it's an actual moving object that's trying to impede and infringe upon and cause havoc to the human race. That's what that is. And all of the followers, all of the agents of of evil, encompass the the types of values and ethics that we would say are bad. So like pride, selfishness, uh, debauchery, perversions of things, okay, a skewed sense of what reality might be. Okay, these are all the things that evil brings with it in this theological and, and like I said, a philosophical sense uh, when it comes to being the villain. And I know these are a lot of really big topics and could probably take up three or four episodes on their own. I'm really just trying to give the overlay as to what villains can encompass, and and like I said before, uh, it's it's as I as I described in this episode in a very physical, psychological, and a theological and philosophical sense. These are some of the the characteristics of what makes and constitutes a really good villain. So, in summation, again, good villains they physically have some kind of an edge. There's something about them in a very physical, tangible sense that makes you, the viewer, kind of raise an eyebrow and go, what's up with this, you know, what's up with this particular individual? Psychologically, this villain is standing in opposition to the goals of the hero. There's there's some kind of motivation. There's something that they're trying to accomplish that is opposite of the hero or the protagonist of any story. And then from a philosophical and theological standpoint, the villain tends to side with evil things. So selfishness, pride, uh, bigotry, certain things that we would say are not admirable traits, and yet we can still relate to in some sense because these are things that we can experience. 
And that also, in some ways, makes us sympathize a bit with with our, our villainous enemies uh, because of how easy it can be to, be to become that. And that's actually something that I want to talk about in my next episode. Uh, so that's my, my neat little segue there because in my next episode, I want to talk about the idea of villains in our waking lives. And I don't know if I'm going to split that one into two parts yet. I, I'll just kind of see how that goes because I, I think there's a lot of material to cover uh, in, in terms of a real-world sense of villains, but I really want to tackle it, and I, I want to see what you guys think of it, because I'm excited to talk about it as well, because I think there's a lot of preconceived notions out there about what is truly villainous, and and ultimately what is uh, maybe just uh, you know something that you can brush off a bit, uh, as opposed to, to something that actually is really, really bad. So that'll be episode 38, and that'll be coming out next week. Uh, so hope you guys can stick around for that. So one last plug, if, you, if you're enjoying The Writer's Lens, if you, if you really think this is a kick-butt uh, podcast about creativity and writing and storytelling, then uh, please head over to patron.podpeen.com uh, and you can support this podcast to make it the best kick-butt creative podcast that there is out there on the net. Uh, or just share with your friends. You know, Share with your friends, let them know what's going on, or like and subscribe, all that kind of good stuff. And uh, other than that, I will look forward to catching up with you guys next week. This is Josh J.C.L. Felto for The Writer's Lens. I'll catch up with you then.